0: Hi, this is Lynette Nylander, host of NTS Radio's new podcast, Sounds and Style. Each week, I'll be chatting with some of culture's most influential figures, exploring how music and style links what we wear with who we are. Expect deep cuts into musical genres and fashion subcultures as my guests and I look at how the music they love has informed the work they make today. This season, I've been chatting with Lily Allen, Martine Rose, Mel Ottenberg, and many more. New episodes drop every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Digging. A quick disclaimer that today's edition is a little bit different from previous episodes. Today's guest, who was born in 1943, is an English writer, poet, philosopher, painter, musician, and activist. In his life, he has co founded some of the most important countercultural movements and groups that have shaped the last 50 years in music and art. Things like the Stonehenge Free Festival in the 1970s, and later the seminal punk band Crass. Together with creative partner G Voucher, he established a radical, self-sustaining open house in the 1960s, where he's lived ever since. It's called Dial House, and it's a large farmhouse in Epping, which is part of Essex, not far from London. When he moved in, he removed all the locks, and people could come and go and live as they pleased. Dial House became known as a centre of radical creativity and our guests' creative output, be it music or writing or something else, has oftentimes served as a vehicle for his political and philosophical messages. For me, someone born in 1993, during the advent of the internet and fast-paced life and incessant materialism, I was desperate to talk to somebody who had lived another way.
1: I mean, I've never really regarded myself as an anarchist because that's a sort of putting a label on common sense, isn't it? Same as I've never questioned organic gardening, because organic gardening is common sense.
0: So I invited myself over via email, and our guest responded to the digging invitation in a typically poetic manner. I'll read you what he said. Dear Flo, in essence, yes, I'd be up for it, but there's a problem in that I regard gardening as a meditation and I would find it impossible to talk and garden at the same time. That is, I garden free of thought, accompanied only by the song of birds, the moo of cattle and the whistle of the wind. I'd be happy to talk sitting in the garden, or in my shed in the garden, but maybe that's not what you're after. Of course I jumped at the chance. So come with us today to Dial House and spend some time—not quite gardening, but in the company of an extremely interesting man who has spent large portions of his long life sitting in contemplation. I hope that you'll take something from this conversation, as I certainly did. Today we're digging with Penny Rambo. We're leaving the cottage. Is that what you would call no. this
1: house? No, no, it's my shed. Uh huh. There's a, you know there's a tradition of men and sheds, isn't there? <laughs> yeah,
0: I am familiar.
1: Pro- probably not a very respectable one either. But
0: What year did you start renting it?
1: 1968. I rented it because I was a painter and I wanted a studio and I wanted silence, and which I got. And I was teaching at an art school at the same time, two or three days I a mean, week. I increasingly fell foul of the sort of other members of staff because I started radicalizing, really. That led to me being sort of half shoved out, half obliged to resign. I mean, I don't know which it was. Came back here, and I did, and it was that time that I just, I thought, I, I I can't, I don't want to live like this. I don't want to be so organized. I don't want to have plans. I don't I watched a film called The End of the Sixth Happiness, or it might be The Seventh Happiness, I don't remember. And it was about, <coughs> Chinese inns and people would just turn up, tell a story and then go the next day and I thought that's a a beautiful idea I said to the other two guys this is what I want to do, we're not going to have any sort of personal shelves, we're not going to have personal possessions we're not going to have anything and they really didn't like the idea and left so I was on my own then I removed all the locks from the doors so that people didn't need to be invited they could come Mm. But then I thought, well, how do you make them come? And then one day I was working on the farm and this young lad turned up and says, you, Jerry," because I was Jerry in those days. I said, yeah. He said, Do you got a place that, you know, people... And it was quite extraordinary because like, I hadn't told anyone. I'd done no advertising. Hadn't, there wasn't any social media in those days. And this guy just knew. So he was my first guest, if you like.
0: And how long did he stay? He must have been there about three or
1: four months, I think. His girlfriend moved in, and then they decided they'd move on, but not without nicking all G's knickers. Which is—it's <laughs> funny the things that got stolen from. <laughs> the, the other one that's top on the list—the book that has been most nicked—is Salanus's uh, Scum Manifesto. Wow. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think it's an absolutely beautiful and wonderful book. But uh, the fact that it's the sort of top of the nick list is
0: yeah. tells
1: a story of some sort, doesn't it?
0: <laughs> so when people would come, was the idea that people could come and live and work and make. Well, when I say work, I mean yeah, creatively sort of. Work. Uh,
1: their initial idea was totally unconditional. If some if someone was really unpleasant, well, that was their business, not mine. It was two models. One was well, they weren't models at the time. I started it model free. But then I heard about R. D. Lang's anti hospital. And that was very inspiring. And then also Andy Warhol's factory. You know, I don't even know the story of the photographer who disappeared in the dark room mm. and basically was never seen again. And Warhol would say, Well, it's none of my business. You know, he's doing his thing, you know, and if he was dying in there, that that was the thing he was doing. I mean, we've had challenging moments. I mean, very, very few, considering the time we've been here. You know, like people who socially might be regarded as sort of psychopathic turned up. And only one of those was a real problem. Uh, I mean, generally speaking, the nature of the place creates a sort of calmness in people.
0: Mm. And I would imagine that I mean, I, I think probably people generally mostly are nice and good. Oh, yeah. And want yeah. to yeah. have a nice, good time yeah. and live in a nice, good place. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And I mean, I've got enormous faith in what's called human nature. I've got faith in it because I don't actually think it exists. Human nature is a series of interpretations, you know, and generally speaking, it's an adaption and a, sometimes a rather unpleasant Adaption to the common narrative. Human nature actually is something we barely know. Mm. Human nature is nature.
0: That leads us on. Maybe we can walk yeah. <laughs> into the uh, vegetable patch. So, did you always have things growing here? I assume it sort of goes with the well. This used DIY. to. This
1: was a bramble patch from here right down to there. Right. Um, there was, no, there was nothing growing, just bramble. So we got a goat and uh, the goat saw to most of the bramble patch.
0: I should maybe describe what we're looking at. We're looking at a, a very large sort of vegetable and flower garden. you like can see we have got cavallonero and cabbages and all sorts of things growing. And maybe this would be a good opportunity to explain why it is we're not actually doing any gardening today, so...
1: I mean, I think garden is... Uh, uh,
0: Shall
1: we sit? Yeah, a place place of and for meditation, really. You know, I do do conventional sitting meditation every day anyway, but things like bread making are a meditation for me. I don't want anyone near me disturbing me. Because if I'm in that state, I'm essentially undisturbable. So I have to come out of that state into a sort of cognitive state
0: how, how do you describe your sort of, what's the best way of putting it, I suppose, spiritual attitude? Do you subscribe to any sort of isms?
1: No. There is pa- parallels. I mean, in Taoism, there's a thing called wu-wei, which is basically non-action or non-thinking, anythinging um, Not that you can stop thinking, but you can stop thinking or thinking. And just leave the thinking to get on with itself. And there is a method called the no method. You just sit, and that's you know I don't subscribe to that because actually even that has by definition has form. Um, yeah, I mean, I just sit, I have no expectations, I have no you know I'm certainly not seeking enlightenment. No because, you know, I believe we all are enlightened and if we want to cover that up with the junk of the material world, fine, you know, that's your choice. But I mean, equally, your choice, one's choice is to just break that attachment to the sort of materialist thought and materialist action and materialist
0: everything. Is meditation something you've always done in life to sort of to break that relationship with materialism? Or is it something that happened to you or that you discovered later in life?
1: No, I sort of was introduced to Zen by an American artist in Italy when I was about 14. And it was one of the first things that made any sense at all to me. Everything else just seemed a bloody nonsense. I, I, I mean, Zen was incomprehensible to me then. And that's why it made sense. You know, it had its own form which couldn't be explained. Anyway so it did have, I mean I was 14 or so something like
0: that. Mm. What other things were shaping you around that time sort of in your youth? What kind of music were you listening to and what did life sort of look like for you as a child or a young teenager?
1: There was a profound moment in my very early youth which I've spoken about so often because it was so important and that was the discovery of a book in my parents' library when I, I don't know what age I was it was between four and seven Uh, but anyway it contained pictures of Auschwitz and the pits and all the rest of it and um, my dad had been at war, I didn't meet my dad till I was two or three or something like that because he was still in Europe And um, he didn't ever speak about it, understandably and when I saw those pictures you know I sort of Thought in our childish way. Oh, so that's what he's doing, is it? You know, I. I mean, I. I didn't know, Mm. and I didn't dare ask. In any case, Dad wouldn't have said. Dad used to tell me, "This is the real world." You know, pointing out to all of this in a materialist framework. I thought, well, bloody hell, if this is the real and I, I'm having nothing to do with it. I was, you know, I, mean, I was traumatised, really. Mm. And I, from then on, I would have nothing to do with it. You know, I mean, I had to go to school and ultimately I was expelled from two schools as a result of my refusal to conform to the real world. I wasn't having it. I was going to make my own world by my own values, you know, and it greatly helped when that... American artist gave me. It was a Paul Reps book, actually, a Zen book, and it made sense. I suddenly thought, "Oh, wow! I mean, there's something in from the material world is actually touching my heart. Mm. Um, nothing else was doing anything. So that was, you know, not only formative; it was truly life-changing um, in the sense that. I was no longer an alien. You know, Zen at that time told me, no, you're not an alien, it's all right, Um, sort of thing.
0: Did you have those sort of uh, visceral gut reactions to art in any sense when you were, at any point in your life really, was there some music you heard or something you saw that produced obviously not a traumatic reaction but that same sort of... Um, sort of it opened up a parallel dimension, I suppose, in the way that art sometimes does.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, hearing Lead Belly when I was about ten or something like that, I was sort of drawn to that, you know, for the rhythms and for the sound but and also for the politics. Mm. Um, You know, deeply affected by that. Um, I used to read Hemingway a lot when I was... Quite, I mean, you know, in my early teens, or even before then probably. And Ibsen, who was another, Ibsen and Hemingway, who two people I, as a kid, really adored, because they were talking of another way. Had I um, read Steinbeck, I, 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 my politics would probably have been far more socialistic, whereas reading Hemingway, my politics were very individualistic. Not anarchist, I mean, I've never really regarded myself as an anarchist, because that's a sort of putting a label on common sense, isn't it? Same as I've never questioned organic gardening, because organic gardening is common sense. Um, It's not anything special about it. You just use what's available. I mean, most of the garden was started through just what I could find, because I didn't have any money, really. And that's been pretty much the same ever since.
0: Mm. Could you tell us a bit about what a day in the life of Penny Rambo looks like at the moment?
1: You mean what an average day might be like? I suppose so. Yeah. The first thing I... Well, the first thing I do in the morning is have a cup of coffee. And then after I've had a cup of coffee, I meditate.
0: After your coffee?
1: contemplate. Yes.
0: Interesting.
1: Well, it's because if I just get out of bed and meditate then I'm in the same state, but awake, as when I'm asleep. Got and it. I, I, what the coffee does is to fire me into thoughts, which I can then let drift by.
0: Mm.
1: And after I've meditated, I contemplate, which is exactly the same thing, except sitting in a chair. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
0: Do you lie down to meditate?
1: No, I, you I squat.
0: Ah, of course.
1: Um, and then, um, well really it doesn't change, you know, whatever I'm doing, I'm doing the same thing um, in that sense. Uh, This is not the same thing because I have to make a firm step into, into the material world and engage in the narrative in some form or other to be comprehensible. I mean, most of my writing is incomprehensible.
0: Your poetry? Yeah, Mm. a lot
1: of it. I mean, increasingly so. Since since this, during this last five years, I no longer see any value in reason. So all my writing is is, is either directly challenging the uh, mores of reason, or actually not challenging them in any sort of narrative sense, but just actually being outside them.
0: Mm. Uh, What shifted in that five years?
1: Well, the fact the world's collapsing. Mm. You know, the fact that that we're living in a totally fractured society. You know, so communities have been fractured. The climate is fractured. The international interrelationship is fractured. How one can be anything but speechless? in the material world, I'm not quite sure I know.
0: What you're saying about not being interested in reason anymore resonates with me and reminds me of something I was listening to recently. What's his name? Roger, the guy who is in charge of um, Extinction Rebellion. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And he was on with Nick Robinson, and he's talking to Nick Robinson, who obviously can't grasp... What he's saying about climate emergency yeah. with any sort of. It just. It, he refuses to understand it, but he says something about how you can't take in the information of the realities of the climate emergency, you know, that one billion people will die at the hands of yeah. the elites, yeah. and not have anything other than an emotional reaction to that, yeah. and that anyone yeah. who tries to have some sort of reason reaction or intellectual yeah, reaction yeah. or yeah. whatever, it just. It, it's not. No, absolutely.
1: part of yeah. it it's not yeah. relevant yeah I think I think um, true engagement is itness and you know we're not apart from those things we are those things mm. you know and we're both we're all the opposites that or the dualities that exist within those things no one's to blame and no one's to praise, um, it's things and mm. it's it's events. One can't have opinions as such um, because they're valueless. You know, you just an opinion is an argument basically. Mm. Isn't
0: it? Oh, that's very beautiful. The sort of manicured tree.
1: Well, it was it, <laughs> the topiary. Yeah, well, it was about twice as high, and you got fed up with it. It was. I did that. Did and you? it was a, yeah, it was about the same greenery again, but one huge ball of it. Right. And it did look a bit absurd, uh, <laughs> yeah. but uh, and so uh, G kept saying, "Oh, can we cut it down?" And I kept saying, "No." And then eventually, it came
0: down. Yeah. It's uh, beautiful. Is this a sort of yeah. Japanese-inspired garden over here? Uh,
1: well, it was inspired. One of the teachers. At the art school, who was living here was Potter, and he started that rockery. Ah! I mean, all of this stuff has got such histories of either people being buried under them or animals being buried under them, Mm -hmm. or you know stories and stuff. There isn't, and where the plants came from, you know, which garden did where, etc., etc. So it's got a you know whole story going.
0: Has this got sort of um, former dial house? Um, attendees under here?
1: Uh, in places, most uh, as ashes, no not right. not any whole bodies. And certainly lot a lot of animals. I bet. Anyway, she's working on this actually at the moment. She's really organizing it. Oh. oh. This is nice.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Picnic area. Yeah. Oh it's it's used
1: more for workshop when there's you know big volumes of people Then and...
0: what kind of workshops are we talking? Well, mostly
1: permaculture. Okay. Uh, We've had things like the Idler magazine did a a sort of workshop get-together. Artists in residence, which is just one person having the complete use of this space we're going into now.
0: Yeah, we were talking a bit about that earlier before we got mic'd up. So. Could you maybe talk a bit about the artists in residence and how that relates to Dial House in a wider sense?
1: Well, it was a way of offering people the opportunity to look in a different space and come up with different solutions because they're in a different space. Uh, they usually you know, go 10 to 14 days. All of this area is completely theirs. Mm. I mean, they won't be interrupted if they don't want to be interrupted. There's a little kitchen round the back. Oh,
0: and a bunny rabbit. (laughs)
1: Yeah, round the back of this shed.
0: God, it's very idyllic here.
1: Yes, it is.
0: Did you build the sheds or were they part of the No, we built them, but
1: I mean, they were, yeah, they've all got a slightly different story. But back in the day, you could buy work. Sheds like this used to be used on building sites. Mm Well, now it's those horrible tin things. Mm, uh, so, and and so you really could pick them up for sod all, really. So people, you know, have used. It, it, it's mostly been visual arts. We've had writers and songwriters and musicians. And for about five years, we had a, studio, a, a really good studio recording studio here, mm. the desk was across there. Wow. But yeah, that was lovely, it was just sort of like, a, you know, come down and just yeah. do bits and pieces with it. I think.
0: How much space do you have here? It's just have? an acre. Okay, feels huge.
1: Yeah, it feel, Yeah. it's because, it, because it's broken into little regions, mm. it makes you, you feel much, it's, it feels much bigger than it really is. Mm. Yeah, this is, this is the forever unfinished chapel. We call it the chapel ironically. Um,
0: Oh my goodness.
1: And it's not actually finished.
0: These are your paintings?
1: No, geez. Oh, wow. uh, um,
0: Oh, they're gorgeous.
1: Yeah, they'll be the only thing, you know, all of these bits and pieces will go and the rest will be sort of like cream or whatever. But this is used for, a sort of sit-around, okay. mainly, for the workshops. Somewhere people can just come and schlunk on the thing. in. Up there is a beautiful meditation area, uh, which doesn't get used very much. Mm.
0: Um, it's gorgeous.
1: I have, I have a sort of um, an idea that on the last nail... I'll drop dead.
0: All right, so you'll finish it when you're ready then. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And what kind of tree is this? This a hawthorn. Hawthorn?
1: Yeah, a lone hawthorn. I'm going to make tincture of all the...
0: What's tincture?
1: Tincture is, uh, uh, well, you steep that in alcohol for probably about eight months. Uh Uh-huh. And then... The be- the- this is an amazing heart and blood medicine because I had a heart attack about six years ago and I've been taking Hawthorne um, ever since. Wow. And none of the drugs they said I had to take for the rest of my life. Um, and it's, it's sort of a miracle.
0: Wow. Yeah. yeah. So you steep this in alcohol yeah. and then it becomes an alcohol yeah. Like, sort of like slow gin or
1: something? Yeah, yeah. Well, you, vodka is what they generally use. Yeah, right. but you're doing the same sort of thing as people put stuff in. Yeah, slow gin, yeah. gin and Yeah. Very big traditions of hawthorn. Well, in all herbal medicine across the world, but particularly in Ireland, which is why these trees are semi-sacred in Ireland. I
0: don't
1: know. And they'll never fell a sing. They would never fell that. Uh, because it is sacred, whereas when you have a row, then that's hedging, and that's a different kettle okay. of fish. Yeah. So this at one time was a sort of... I used to do sort of shamanistic stuff. Up here. I was I mean, going to say... I don't do shamanistic anymore, but... Uh, I'm
0: getting sort of yeah. stone circle yeah, yeah, situations yeah, yeah. up here. Yeah, 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 yeah. In the silver birches. It's beautiful.
1: Yeah, I used to come up here and sort of cast spells and all that sort of <laughs> nonsense. The nonsense was it? good few of them worked. But
0: <laughs> oh, crows are coming in. We were talking a bit before we started recording about your relatively new tattoo, the crow on your ankle. Could you tell us a bit more about that, seeing as we're among the crows now?
1: I'd injured my leg doing some tree work, and the injury formed into this, you know, when, when blood sort of creates patterns like that, yeah. but much darker. And it looked like a bird. So that was the persuasion. And I can't remember whether it was the day, I think it was the, I booked in to go. And then the biggest crow I've ever seen here landed at my window where I was sitting working. And it's been back every day. It comes now, isn't it? Always solitary. I mean, I wonder whether it might be a raven, but...
0: Uh, what's the... What's the... A crow on its own as a rook and a rook on its own, a rook and a crowd as a crow? Or Do you know that thing? No, I don't. A crow on its own as a rook and a rook in a crowd as a crow. Oh, right. Or some, but then it's one of those <laughs> yeah. things where yeah, it yeah, could work yeah, the other yeah, way. Yeah, 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 <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Because they all coexist, because jackdaws coexist with with the crows, they'll be amongst them as well, because we have masses of jackdaw nests around the, inside oh. the house, you know, in the roof and stuff. Oh, blimey. Last year.
0: How many tattoos do you have?
1: Well, I've got that, that, and then my whole back has got a... Uh, when I was told I'd got cancer, which was manifesting on the skin, but it actually was called squamous cancer, which eventually gets you limbs I didn't feel the least a bit disturbed about that, and I got really fed up with people thinking because I'd got an illness they somehow owned me. Mm. And I thought I know the best thing. I'm going to get. I'd been having some healing on my back, and it was always sort of just angelic. it was just such beautiful sense I'd get. So I got a Tinkerbell on my shoulder. Fantastic. So on this shoulder and she looks after me very well over the years. well, I'll show you.
0: Yeah, I do. (laughs) Oh, that is beautiful. She's fantastic. (laughs) I love that. All down your spine. Yeah. With they glitter.
1: No, they can do glitter now. That is fab. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my end belief is that uh, pure meditation is pure healing in fact I think it's the only healing
0: I think I was watching was I watching an interview with you and you said something about how after crass you felt like because you'd been performing a lot and lots of people were looking to you for sort of social and political guidance if you like that you had sort of developed you'd come outside of yourself you know and developed this sort of Persona, or you were on the outside looking in. Do you feel like you've sort of found yourself again, not in a sort of, you know, new age sense,
1: but well, I've more lost myself. Yeah. Go on. Well, I mean, it, you, there is no self. Mm. Um, self is a construct. You know, an idea, a set of like, mostly second-hand ideas. That's partly why I changed my name because I wanted to give birth to myself. You know, I've been given all of these things, you know, sort of race, religion, gender, name, are all things which are complete constructs or irrelevances. And so that's all part of acknowledging you're nothing but everything. I mean, there's only two absolutes. And one is nothing, and nothing has to include everything. Otherwise it's not nothing. And everything, which has to include nothing, otherwise it's not everything. So there's two absolutes, and they are total. There's nothing else but that. So everything everything and nothing are identical things. Existentialism comes quite close to some of those sort of musings, but tends to end up heavily on the nothing. Buddhism carries through with that, but tends to end up on the everything. In realising that those two are absolutes, you can't, really ha- you can't have two absolutes, because an absolute is an absolute. But there are two absolutes, and one is everything, and the other one is nothing, and they both contain each other. So the absolute is something which is unnamed of the two. And that's Tao, really. I mean, that's what a Taoist would say. Um, yes.
0: <laughs> You've lost me. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, shall we... Make our way, maybe inside, mm-hmm. for a quick bit of grass, North. sort of thing. Yes. Oh. Um, okay, just this. So now we're in your shed. Would you say? Would you say? Is this where you live? This yes. is where you? Yeah. Work?
1: No. Well, I live and I sleep and I.
0: Can I sit here? Yeah, wherever. Fantastic. Uh, I love it. <laughs> I feel, does everyone have that reaction when they come in? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, it's just sort of perfect. I was wondering if maybe you could talk a bit about Dial House and as a birthplace for the band and how Crass sort of emerged from both Dial House as a place and I suppose the political situation of the time. And
1: I mean, the... House has always operated, or we've already talked about, in, in, on the theory of allowance, if not the actual practice of it. So anyone's welcome and they can bring what they want. And Crass came about that way. I mean, I'd had other sort of musical projects. We used to have a band called Exit. We were sort of like guerrilla band. We'd turn up at places and just do things, you know, uninvited. Usually universities and things like that it was far more radical than Christ in a strange way it was doing it rather than saying it you know we weren't trying to promote ideas of self expression and freedom we were just doing it you know and sod the consequences we certainly weren't looking for any sort of commercial there was no commercial interest yeah I mean so there's always been people making music making sounds here G left to go to we, we, we travelled, G and myself travelled in America. We were, we were still sort of in a relationship at that time. And she was very moved by America because, you know, the class difference didn't matter. The people couldn't see that G and myself were from, you know, radically different backgrounds.
0: Mm.
1: You know, she comes from a very poor working class background. And I come from a sort of pretty wealthy upper middle class background.
0: Mm.
1: And and it was beautiful. I mean, people addressed her as an equal. I, mean, I was used to it here. You know, I was always the guy in charge. You know, she didn't get in, get a look in sort of thing. Uh, and that's always been... And that, I mean, things have changed so much. I mean, fe- feminism has booted so much of that very hard. Mm. I've been writing a thing about the death of Wally Hope, who was the guy who... Well, I helped him found the first Stonehenge Festival. And he was, as a result, he was, a, I, I believe, uh, and still believe that he was assassinated for that by the state, uh, which pissed me off somewhat. Um, and I spent a year working, you know, investigating it and proving conclusively that it was a setup, and uh, And I became, very obviously, I became very, very dark and very depressive and people were just leaving, you know. I mean, I think it was probably when I started the book, maybe six people were living here. G was the last to leave. And I was on my own here, which was pretty horrific. And I started becoming quite fearful, actually. I mean, I'd had two death threats and all that sort of shit. And I didn't, I wasn't really happy. And Steve turned up, he, and he was the brother of one of the guys who used to be here quite a lot. And he was very young, he was only 15 or 16 when he turned up. And uh, I was dead by then thirty three or something, and he found me in a bad state. I was still finishing i I did a book, I started writing a book about one, which I eventually burned because I couldn't take any more. anyway. He came just after that, and we were both pissed off in our very different ways. He wanted to form a band he'd gone back to Dagnham, where he he was from, and none of the guys wanted to do it, you know, they were too keen on sort of going out with girls and drinking beer and doing things that young boys do. And uh, But Steve wanted to make a band, so I said, well, I've got a drum kit, you know, let's be a band. So we started, just the two of us, you know, and we were happy with it just being the two of us, really, but other people came through that said, oh, you know, can we join, Anyway, you know, any anyway, it was free.
0: Mm.
1: Exit used to, sometimes we had up to 40 people going out on the road. you know, Bloody hell whole load of sort of happenings and theatre as part of the overall thing. And anyone who was there could come on stage and just join in with the band if they wanted to. That sort of, it had just that very open feel to it. And that's why I'm saying it was more radical, actually, than Crass. Crass was sort of more radical in their immediate politics. But uh, anyway, so Steve and myself got going and other people turned up and it developed into, you know, it became The Bandit. Known as, and it was a very unusual band in the sense that you know there was a, 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 a true gender balance within it, a true age balance, a true class balance. Very rare. Most bands are constructed of people who are at school together or whatever, and so they have the same identity, you know, social identity, the same social practices.
0: Mm.
1: The unusual thing about Crass is that. I mean, I was 33. Steve was 16 or something. Other. I mean, Eve came from a uh, you know very sort of upper, upper middle class. You know, about three people in the band came from the upper middles. Some came from the lower middles. I mean, I don't like, like like those definitions, but actually, they. It's intriguing when those things really work together. I've I have sometimes thought of writing a book as a study of Crass from a class perspective because it would be really fascinating. Mm. The expectations, I mean, G and Steve, who both came from very poor working class backgrounds, had no expectations of any rights. They simply had to take stuff, steal it, blag it. I mean, if Steve wanted a new pair of boots, he'd go out at the beginning of a tour and come back with them because he would have blagged a pair off someone they'd be more than happy to wear his old plimsolls. He'd be very happy to be wearing their new Doc Martens. And he worked that way. Mm. I came from a background which taught me that I had a right to everything I wanted. A right, not a a choice, because that's what public schools do to people, what they try to do.
0: Mm.
1: And so, yeah, so it was a profound... it, it, It in itself just... Without us uttering a word, we were making a statement through our presence.
0: Mm, and that must have, did that affect the dynamic of the way you all worked together, do you think? Or had you sort of, because you were aware of those differences between you, you could affect your behaviour in a certain way, or you were just all sort of united under a common.
1: Oh, no, we were very united under a common cause, yeah. which was not rebellion which was much closer to revolution. Not a violent revolution, I mean I believe in cultural revolution, but which is a far more permanent thing if it's achievable. It is true that this place offers the solace that has allowed some of the most radical social statements, you know, of the last half century to have been made. And I'm not Boasting in that, I mean, I think it's true, you know. I mean, our stuff still um, is radical, you know, stuff that we did 50, 40 years ago mm. is still actually playing itself out, mm. you know. It's, nothing's changed, it's just got worse. Which isn't to say that we, the humans, haven't changed and maybe got better. Um, maybe. Yeah.
0: Do you listen to music in here?
1: Oh, of course. And actually, I know what I'll do. I'm going to pay you the first track of an album I've just finished doing with a woman saxophonist, who I've always thought is one of the greatest in Britain but has never been acknowledged properly. She's probably in her 60s, I think, now. She was, she's got an outfit called the Casimir Connection and I heard them and I liked it but I sort of could see something else in it that I... Want, I I thought she should pursue, you know, in my arrogance, I thought she should pursue. Anyway, I, I contacted her and said, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think you should, da, 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 And she went along with all that. So anyway, we worked for about nine months. Anyway, it will give you an idea of where I'm at and it would actually be a beautiful way of finishing your programme.
0: That sounds perfect.
1: And it sort of probably says more than I can manage to say. Well, hope it does. <sighs> If it doesn't I've failed in my job.
0: A perfect place to wrap up. Thank you very much, Penny, for having us here today. It's been amazing to talk to you and to see Dalhouse. So, although we didn't garden, I feel...
1: We gardened souls.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to Digging. Today's episode was hosted and edited by me, Flo Dill. The producer was Lizzie King with Julia Campanella on sound recording and Felix Stock on audio production. Our theme music is by The Cleaners from Venus. And if you enjoyed this episode, it would be brilliant if you could rate and review it on the podcast app that you're using as it helps more people to discover the series. M-T-S.